Amen. You can be seated. Good to be reminded of the substance of what we stand upon as we gather this morning, church, that we come assured of the one who is our Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it's from his word that we anticipate hearing. Uh, Good morning. If you're visiting with us again, if you found a seat among us, we're glad that you're here. Most of all, that you would be refreshed in the hearing of the gospel as we consider it this morning. One other announcement, um, just by way of reminder for any of our members serving in children's ministry, that after service this morning, uh, the fingerprinting service will be available. I think we mentioned that to you last week, so if that pertains to you, don't forget before you slip out afterwards. This morning, we continue to make our way through Mark's gospel, so would you turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 11? If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one somewhere nearby in one of the seat backs in front of you. We would encourage you to use that, and you'll find uh, the portion of Scripture we're considering this morning on page 795, Mark chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 26. Let's hear God's word together. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage at Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who had sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together as we consider God's word, how much we need his help to hear and to respond rightly. Our God and Father, we look to you this morning and we come to you as those who've just heard your word. We come as those who've received what you have spoken to us as you've given us the words of life. Lord, we come acknowledging that sometimes you bring hard words, sometimes you bring exhorting and encouraging words, sometimes you bring comfort, sometimes you bring warning. Lord, we need to and we want to respond rightly. The sort of response that we need and the very response that we want is that of faith. So Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to respond in faith, to respond rightly to who you are, to respond rightly of what you say of us, to respond in all boldness that we might believe you as we've just heard, that we might place all our confidence in you and not in ourselves. Help us this morning as your church. Help us to hear and to receive as we ought and help us to respond in such a way that you might cause much fruit to be born in our lives. Lord, we're asking for the sort of fruit that remains, the sort of fruit that brings you glory, the sort of fruit that you promised that you would cause to multiply 30, 60, even 100-fold. Jesus, as you've come to your church this morning, we pray that you would cause us to bear much fruit for your sake. Amen. Well, as we come to Mark chapter 11, we come really to the final scenes of Jesus' earthly ministry. From this point forward, through chapter 16, it's going to revolve primarily around Jerusalem. It's going to revolve primarily around the temple. And most importantly, what the temple actually points to. If you remember last week, Mark 10 ended with a blind man calling out to Jesus, not only asking for mercy, but addressing Jesus as the son of David. This title, given by this blind man, spoken with great significance because it reminds us of who Jesus is. It reminds us that he's more than a teacher, he's more than a healer, he's more than just another prophet, but it reminds us that Jesus, being the son of David, is actually the promised king, the promised rescuer who will deliver God's people and who will establish God's kingdom. And then here, in Mark 11, Mark writes of the same Jesus the son of David, coming into Jerusalem, which is, as you know, the city of David. Now, the significance of this man coming into this city is seen when when we remember that Jerusalem was the central city which contained God's temple. The significance of Jerusalem is what was contained within the city itself. The temple, if you like, was the visible answer, God's answer, to show how sinful man can dwell with and commune with a holy God. The temple 
proclaimed that it was only through the sacrifice that God provides and the sort of worship that God prescribes that his people can then gather to him in faith. So, keeping all of that in mind, the city in which Jesus is, the significance in which it holds, what happens when the place in which God has put his name does not reflect the character of that God? What happens when the son of David comes to the city of David? That's really what unfolds before us here in Mark chapter 11. And the answers to those two questions reveal not only the emphasis of the portion of text before us, but really the remainder of Mark's gospel. What happens when Christ arrives to his house? What happens when Christ arrives to this temple? What we're going to see this morning, that when Jesus, the son of David, comes to the city of David, he comes as a servant king, he comes to inspect his house, and thirdly, he's going to come to exhort his people. Let's consider how this unfolds first as we see Jesus coming as a servant king. You see this really in the first ten verses of Mark 11. As you read through it or heard it read a moment ago, you noticed or heard the preparations that Jesus makes as he arrives into the city with peculiar detail. I love the fact that Mark gives us these peculiar details of Jesus instructing his men to find a colt, and if anybody asks about what you're doing, tell them the master needs it, and sure enough, somebody says, hey, what are you doing with that colt? The master needs it. Oh, go your way. All of these peculiar details leading up to this eventual arrival. This peculiar request, though, And the acquisition of this specific donkey is loaded with significance. This is not just passing detail to set the scenery or add character to development. Mark is very precise with his words. And so these words have a very precise meaning. They are filled with Old Testament imagery of the promised Messiah. They are, in fact, a reflection of the prophet Zechariah. Hear the prophet's word in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Now if you read through the prophet Zechariah, you'll find that Zechariah 9 which this is taken from, marks this significant section within the book as it pertains to God's sovereignty over the nation and God giving hope to these captive Israelites. In Zechariah 9, the first seven verses, is essentially a judgment oracle where the prophet speaks forth judgment against the unbelieving nations who have continually threatened Israel's existence. And then God promises verse 9, what we just read, that he will protect his people. And he emphasizes this theme of his sovereign rule over his people through what? Through a coming king. A king who will establish righteousness and peace. And so, Jesus' identification with this promised messianic king back in Zechariah 9 is significant that he comes into Jerusalem under this banner in this way, because the way in which he enters the city points to the faithfulness of God 
to rescue his people through the sending of a king. And by coming on a donkey in the way that he does, Jesus is symbolically declaring in a very loud word picture that the battle has been won and that the time of peace has arrived, just as God promised through his prophet Zechariah. He has come to destroy the enemy of God's people. Not the Romans, but as Mark has been careful to point out, he has come to destroy the enemies of Satan, of sin, and really of death itself. We read Mark 11 alongside Mark chapter 10, specifically verse 33. Remember that Jesus just told his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be condemned, where he will be flogged and mocked and spit upon, where he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and where he will be killed and he will be buried and he will rise again. So we read this triumphal entry as it is alongside this triumphal announcement of Mark 10, remembering that he arrives as the servant king to conquer by himself being betrayed and killed. He comes to bring peace by himself being the peace offering. He comes knowing full well that he will be betrayed, condemned, and delivered over to death. Mark's point is that it is in this manner that the king will conquer and he will bring peace to God's people. Let's consider not only the significance of how he entered, but consider for a moment the significance of what was said as he entered. What did they shout? Mark tells us that as Jesus approached the city, many began to take off their coats, spread them along the road, grab leafy branches from the fields around them, and to spread them across the road. And most significantly, they shouted of salvation. They shouted, Hosanna, which is literally, save now. It's a prayer for salvation. And what they're doing is reciting portions of the Hillel Psalms, specifically Psalm 118. These psalms, if you go back and read through them, they speak of these continual themes of the blessings of dwelling with God. All these images of God's people being in God's house. There's also this repeated refrain of the longing of God's people for the deliverance that only God can bring. And so there's this homesickness here where I long for what God has promised and I'm lamenting of what I see in front of me. And hence the great declaration, Lord, save, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so it's from this portion, with these very prayers being shouted, that Jesus rides into Jerusalem upon this donkey under the shouts of praises and blessings that come from what God promises through his line, the King of David. Now this entrance that Jesus makes, just notice how it's consistent with everything that Mark has been telling us. Go back to Mark chapter 1, 15, when we see Jesus standing there in this great announcement. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is Mark's just bracketed summary statement of what Jesus began to do and teach in response to this good news of the gospel. He speaks of a kingdom, and he speaks of the need for belief and repentance. And what kind of kingdom is this that this Jesus speaks of? Well, Mark has also been very careful to articulate what kind of king and kingdom it isn't and what kind of kingdom it is. Do you remember last week we just heard in Mark 10, verse 45, 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life is a ransom for many. What all of this is pointing to is that Jesus comes in fulfillment of God's promise to his people. He comes, though, in a way contrary to what his people often expect. He does not arrive in Jerusalem in a glistening chariot, being pulled by a majestic war horse, just as a Roman conqueror would do. This Jesus, he comes in upon a colt with well-worn, tattered coats being laid upon his foal, being laid before him, and common palm branches being put before him. He comes as a king, but not at all like any king you would expect. He comes as a king, but not at all like the king that the watching world would anticipate. Friends, if this is true of this Jesus, and if this Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if this is the very ethos of the kingdom in which he's come to bring, that should be a reminder to us that we should not be surprised if he breaks into your life in the same way. If he seeks to show you the fact that he is king, but he comes not as you might expect. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he comes to conquer. But that does not mean that he rids your life of all difficulties. That he fills your bank account to abundance. It does not mean that he answers all your dreams and makes your life just a bit more comfortable. He often shows himself to be king by invading our lives in the midst of the bitterness of unmet expectations. Showing himself to even be king over that. He often shows himself to be king through our grief, not in spite of grief. To show himself sufficient to carry us even in those darkest days. He shows himself often to be king through bodily weakness and sickness. Not keeping us from that, but in the midst of that where we cry out, save now, and he shows himself to be the sufficient one who actually sustains his people and is king even over all our sufferings. He shows himself ultimately to be king by conquering us. He shows himself to be king by overturning our proud assumptions and our self-righteous living. He comes to make himself known, and he comes to show himself as king. I think that's why in our own confession, speaking of Christ is the one who is the mediator. The Second London Confession, chapter 8, the last paragraph, where it speaks of the offices of this Christ saying that we need his kingly office. How would you finish that sentence? Why do I need Jesus to be my king? Listen to how the confession summarizes the teaching of scripture. We need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. I need him to be king to conquer me. I need him to be king to show me that he's actually king over the one God that I want to serve above all gods, me. The son of David arrives, and we must see him as scripture reveals, the servant king who comes to rescue God's people. 
when the son of David comes to the city of David, he not only comes as the servant king, what Mark also emphasizes is that he comes to inspect his own house. Look back at verse 12. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when an evening had came, they went out of the city. And hearing that, notice in your Bibles how verse 10 is really the setup and the foreshadow of what is about to come. Because what we read in verse 10 is that the holy, eternal God who takes on human flesh arrives in Jerusalem to look around at everything. Do not overwrite Jesus' divinity by reading of his humanity. Who is this one? He is the Son of God in human flesh. And in all of his glory, as the Son of God, he comes to the city of David, and Mark tells us he begins to look around at everything. And then we begin to read of the following accounts. Now, if you've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, you may remember that Mark often uses this literary device, what we're calling, for lack of better terms, and I think is a very American term, a sandwich technique. Because we love food, and so when we see something like this, we say, ah, that reminds me of a sandwich. Whatever it is, it works, because what Mark does is he often will take three events and group them together in such a way that we see they're related. He uses this sandwich technique to arrange the events in chapter 11 by making a fig temple sandwich, meaning he places the cleansing of the temple in between this encounter with the fig tree so that we might see the connection in what is happening here. We're meant to interpret and understand this encounter on the temple in relation to this fig tree. That's what he's doing. Fig tree, temple, and then fig tree again. At a high level, just run your eyes across the text and get a sense of the narrative. Verse 10, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He looks at everything in front of him. Verse 13, Jesus sees the fig tree from a distance, noticing the leaves, and then moves closer, seeing if he could find fruit. The end of verse 13, he finds nothing. Verse 14, he curses the fig tree, and the disciples hear it, Mark notes. And then finally, verse 20, the disciples the next day see the fig tree withered up at the roots. No doubt, this is a curious incident, but keep in mind, Mark intends it to be the interpretive lens by which we understand what happens in between these encounters. What does Christ find on this tree? 
start there. In short, you could say he sees an abundance of leaves, but no fruit. Now, some Mediterranean horticulture and some fig tree background may be helpful for us at this moment. If you skipped that class in community college, this may be helpful for you to understand and make sense of what is happening here, especially because Mark says it wasn't the season for figs. What are we supposed to do with this, and why is this written for us? Keep in mind, many of the fig trees in that region fruited twice a year meaning after the main fig harvest in fall, the branches of the fig tree would sprout these smaller buds that remained undeveloped throughout the winter season, and then these buds would develop and swell into actual a second fig harvest in early spring, followed by leaves. So, meaning the spring fruit comes first, then the leaves. So, if you grew up in Israel, and saw a fig tree in early spring covered in leaves, it would be your clue, if there's leaves, that means that tree has fruit. And if you're hungry, that's a good indication. I'll probably find some food on that tree. All this to say, where there's leaves, there's fruit. What we have here, then, is a deceptive fig tree. Because what Jesus noticed from a distance, this particular fig tree covered in leaves. Keep in mind, that should be an indication that there will be figs on this tree. From a distance, it would appear that this should be a tree covered in fruit because it's covered in leaves. But upon closer inspection, what does Jesus find? There's no fruit to be found. And if you found a fig tree that's covered in leaves, but barren from fruit, it would be a sign to you that something is very wrong with this tree. There's something wrong with the health of this tree. There's actually something wrong with the way that this tree was created to function. From a distance, it might actually look healthy. But upon closer inspection, the leaves reveal that they're just a cover for an absence of fruit. Fair enough. What does Christ find when he comes to the temple? The key to understanding this confrontation is really verse 17. Because Jesus declares the purpose of the temple and the problem of this temple. Look at verse 17. As he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Purpose, problem. What's the purpose? It was intended to be a place of prayer for all the nations. What's the problem? You've turned it into a den of robbers. Now, as Jesus says this, he has two scriptures in mind. Two scriptures that would have resonated with the very people that he was speaking to. Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Jesus references Isaiah 56 as he speaks to the purpose of the temple. He'll go to Jeremiah 7 to speak of the problem with the temple. But what is the purpose of this temple? What is the purpose of this house? What should he expect to find as he comes into this house? Listen to Isaiah 56, verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him 
who love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. An amazing prophecy as God reveals that his house exists to be a prayer not only for his people, the outcasts that he gathers, but for others besides the inclusion of all nations. His house, then, was to be an extension, really, of the promise of salvation that goes forth, to be an invitation to people formerly excluded from this house. Meaning, the temple is not the exclusive property of Israel, but it was to serve as a witness to the nations, testifying that Yahweh takes outsiders and makes them insiders. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. That means the temple was not theirs to organize as they saw fit or to hoard to themselves, but to serve really as a beacon testifying of this God and of his good news. Now, the irony of this encounter here in Mark 11 is that many would have expected this Jesus or this Messiah to purge Jerusalem and the temple of all the Gentiles and all the outsiders restoring Israel to be God's people minus all the outsiders. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't cleanse the temple of Gentiles. He cleanses the temple for Gentiles. Notice that Jesus also references Jeremiah 7. And in referencing Jeremiah 7, He's speaking to the real problem here. He says, you've absolutely forgotten the purpose. And the reason you've forgotten the purpose is because of this problem. The problem was that this temple, his house, was completely abused and misused. It was turned into a den of robbers. In Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 11, God rebukes his people. He rebukes Judah specifically because they kept saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. When God was saying, look at your adultery, look at your bloodshed, look at the inconsistency of the way that you live and yet what you profess, and yet, Judah, you keep saying, the temple's in our midst. Look how God favors us. We are God's people, but look at how you're living, but look at the temple. The rebuke to God's people, Judah, in Jeremiah 7, is that they convinced themselves that they were sure, surely so favored by God that that offset the scales of any behavior in their life. And by doing so, Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah, said you've actually turned this house into a den of robbers. Meaning, you've turned my house to be a sanctuary for thieves, where people who live this way retreat back to to find security in. You don't rob your den. You hide in your den because you think you're safe there, because that's where you think that you continue to to live the way that you want to live, and you'll be secure, the temple of the Lord. 
the temple of the Lord. And notice the problem then in what Jesus does in Mark chapter 11. He's calling his house a robber's den, not simply as a rebuke because of all the dishonest practices in the temple, and there surely were, but it was a rebuke for allowing the temple to degenerate into a safe hiding place for people to think that they could find forgiveness and have fellowship with God despite how they lived outside of that temple. The sanctuary of God had become a sanctuary for bandits who think that they are protected from the judgment of God. Christ arrives and says, have you not heard? Have you not heard how badly this ends? Have you not heard what a contradiction this is to my name and this house and who you are? Now, stand back for just a moment. And notice how this encounter does two things. It points to the unfolding redemptive story of Scripture. And it also points to this great warning for his church today. The same encounter should cause us to look at two different things. In regards to God's plan of redemption, in judging Israel's physical temple, what Jesus is doing here is he's clearing the way to establish the permanent temple that he will establish. The temple of his own body that through his work, his sacrificial atonement, outcasts will become insiders and those who are scattered will be gathered and made joyful because they belong to his house. Instead of dwelling in a temple made with hands, God's glory has descended in his son and those who join himself to the son become a part of his body, his temple, whom he is building as a dwelling place for God. So by rebuking this physical temple, he is ushering in the reality to say, I have fulfilled what this temple has failed to do. That is the unfolding arc of redemptive history that is beginning to creep forward in these pages. But in regards to God's warning for his people, don't miss Jesus' point and Mark's emphasis. Christ will overturn and destroy all fruitless religion and all false professors. He comes to his house and he looks for fruit. This fig tree, abundant in leaves, but devoid of fruit. This temple, overflowing with activity, masses of people, but void of any real fruit. This is a stern rebuke for all who hear this. It's a warning against empty professions of Christianity, unaccompanied by sound doctrine and holy living. This is a rebuke to the hypocritical and double-minded false professor. It's a warning to any of us content with God's name being upon us, but devoid of actual fruit among us. Christ comes to his house to inspect for fruit. What will he find? Do you call yourself a Christian, friend? Please do not miss partial application of what Christ is proclaiming here. Because it warns us against hiding in a church behind our attendance, behind 
our knowledge of Scripture. Behind the leaves of our own self-righteousness. We need to hear this and be sobered. That it doesn't matter how full a building is. It doesn't matter at the end of the day if we would say, I'm baptized, I attend this church, I'm a member of this church, I participate in the Lord's Supper, I have a knowledge of the Old Testament, a bit of the New, when all of that is insufficient to save our souls. You can have all of those things, be present in all of those ways, and be devoid of fruit. Without the fruit of God's Spirit, these are simply the leaves that cover the fact we have no fruit. And if that is the scenario and the description of your life, friend, you are only adding to your condemnation. Faith without works is dead. Though withered, this fig tree still speaks. It is a cursed thing to profess faith and yet be devoid of fruit. This is the message not only of Mark 11, but friends, this gets to the core of who we are as as, as a humanity. Going back all the way to the garden, we are a people convinced it's better to hide our barren and unfruitful lives behind the leaves of self-righteousness than deal with reality. Is that not what was happening in the garden? But Christ has come. And when Christ comes, he comes to awaken us to this great sin and he bids sinners to come and hide themselves in him. He calls us to turn from our deception and towards the life-giving spirit that he sends, to turn towards his atoning blood, to turn towards his gracious forgiveness. We live before the face of God And our lives are lived in the light of his perfect vision. Just as Christ stepped on that temple mount and began to survey the reality of what was before him, he stands among his church to survey what stands before him. And therefore, that is why we humble ourselves and we confess. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Instead of hiding, God's people repent and believe. We believe that Christ is correct in his assessment of us and that he is trustworthy in all that he promises. And we repent by turning our mind and our life from unbelief and sin and we turn towards the opposite direction, towards faith and his righteousness. Christians repent and believe. They don't hide. And when Christ comes to his house, he inspects. But he not only inspects for fruit, he not only arrives as this servant king, what we find in the final verses, verses 20 through to 25, is that he comes to exhort his people. He comes to exhort his people. Look at how this unfolds in verse 22. In response to Peter's realization 
the fig tree being cursed and withered, Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Notice how this flows from one account into the next. Peter was so amazed that the fig tree was withered. The same fig tree that they saw 24 hours earlier, his jaw drops and says, Rabbi, look, it's withered. Now remember, Mark said that when Jesus cursed the fig tree, the disciples heard it. He drops that in so that that's our clue that Peter is listening so that we understand when this comes back around, there's a reason they heard this so that they could see what happened. Essentially, in the most simplest terms, in verse 14, what happened? They heard the word of Christ. And then, in verse 20 and 21, they saw the word of Christ come to pass. In essence, Peter is astounded by the power of Christ's word because it's effectual. The very thing you said has happened. And how does Jesus respond to this amazement? Believe in God. That's what he tells Peter. This is an exhortation to consider the reality of being God's people and how we ought to live in light of the effective power of his word. And if verse 17 is really the correction to what's happening in God's house, then verses 22 and 25 are the exhortation as to what should be happening in God's house. What should be happening in God's house? Belief in God, forgiveness towards men. Look at how this unfolds. Belief in God. As he says there in verse 23, to believe in God, he then goes on to exhort them and talks about not doubting in our heart, but believing that whatever he says will come to pass. I wonder, as you read verses 23 and 24, did you score him a bit? Did you hesitate a little bit upon hearing of those words, an immediate, uh, yeah, qualification that you wanted to insert there? Mindful, perhaps, of all the abuse that this portion of Scripture has undergone. If you are familiar at all with popular false teaching and prosperity doctrine, you know how often this verse is perverted for selfish gain. Now, we can read this verse in two ways. Believe in God. Speak forth your words in faith, knowing that you bind creation to do whatever you ask. Even the mighty mountains must bow to your will. That's option one. Option two. Believe in God. He is unlimited in power and sovereign over all creation so that you can pray for the unimaginable and the humanly impossible. Option one puts the emphasis upon our faith and creation bending to our will. Option two puts the emphasis upon God and confidence in his ability. What I'm saying is that in option one, 
Faith is the active agent that causes circumstances to change. And option two, God is the active agent that faith looks to. Friends, we should not throw this verse out or move on so quickly because of all the abuse and perversion that it has taken, but we should lean in a little bit harder and say, no, belief in God actually means this, and it is much more comforting and actually much more powerful than any false teacher would lead you to believe. Any sort of name it and claim it false teaching, any idea that our words have creative power and that creation and life events must must bow to our speaking forth is contrary to all of Scripture. The emphasis here of Jesus is an exhortation to believe in God and then pray prayers that are fueled by a faith in that God. When we are confident in God's character, in God's might, in His goodness, in His glory, we pray in such a way that we are believing as though we'd already received it because we are confident in whom the God we pray to. Peter, you heard me curse the fig tree. The next day you saw it withered to the roots. Pray in such a way that when you ask, you are confident that it's as good as done. Peter, you heard my word and you saw the effective power of it. Pray in such a way that you've heard my word and you are confident of the effective power of it. Faith, friends, believes in God enough to ask. And that asking is rooted in the conviction that God intends his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, all of this is well and good. But the logic in all of this, and maybe you've already begun to sniff this out, is that this whole idea of asking in faith is according to God's will. I can have absolute confidence that when I ask according to God's will, that it will be done. That's wonderful. Anybody who's begun to pray says, here's the problem. I don't always know what God's will is. How can I pray in faith if I don't know God's will? It short circuits everything Jesus is saying. Jesus, you know the Father's will. I, I don't know the the will of the Father. I think I know, but I might be wrong, and so I'm praying maybe kind of if you want, this would be a good thing. It doesn't sound at all like what Jesus is teaching. If we are not omniscient, if we are fallible fallen creatures, how in the world can Christ exhort us to believe in God and pray in such a way as though we had already received it? Friends, here's the wonderful emphasis of the context of this and what God would call us to know. Praying in line with the will of God launches, excuse me, praying in line with the word of God launches our prayer into the will of God. That's the pattern that we saw here. They heard the word of Christ. They saw the effective power of Christ's word. When we pray along the lines of the word of God, we can become confident of the will of God. Let's think about this in just simplest form. You begin to think about those around you. You begin to think about God. You're a merciful God. Have mercy on my dad. You're a good shepherd. Being their good shepherd, would you protect them? Would you correct him? Would you provide for her? Bear them up and keep them forever. 
See, we're beginning to think along the lines of how has God revealed himself and then praying along those lines that we can say amen. I know that is a prayer according to the will of God. And when we pray along the lines of God's revealed character and the promises, we elevate our prayers from what I would call maintenance prayers to kingdom prayer. By maintenance prayer, what I mean by that is it stops with asking for things. Help them. Fix them. Heal them. Provide that. Not wrong. Certainly things well within God's wheelhouse to take care of. But it stops at asking for things or events. What's kingdom prayer? Kingdom prayer transforms those same events fueled with faith-filled requests so that we can ask in such a way that we believe as if we've already received them. Let's think of another example. Let's think of praying for chronic pain. Let's think of praying for somebody in deep sickness, perhaps yourself. We could pray, make the pain stop. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you pray that in all confidence? Can you pray that believing as though you'd already received it? You might try and work up, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it, as you look around down the row and know somebody else with the same sickness died last week. Instead of praying for chronic illness or the pain to stop, what if we prayed like this? Father, you are sovereign. You could end this pain right now. Nevertheless, I know you often give suffering and sin trial to purify our faith. Use this pain and this sickness to purge me of selfish desires. Use this pain to grow me in dependence upon you. Strengthen me with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Give me a heart of thankfulness. Keep me from bitterness. Amen. Do you see the difference? All that that second prayer was was essentially telling God what he's already promised, praying along the lines of his revealed word to us. I can come to the end of that prayer and say amen, believing as if I'd already received it because God has already promised he will be those things. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What should be happening in the house of God? Belief in God. And then lastly, forgiveness towards man. Jesus kind of throws a curveball in there right at the end where we wish he said amen and just walked away, but he clears his throat and he begins to say, and whenever you stand praying and forgive. Notice the absolutes of what he has here. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, that pretty much covers all the bases. Forgive. Now, if we read this in the light of whole of revealed scripture, this can't be a works-based emphasis. This cannot mean Jesus is saying, hey, forgive, so God will forgive you. Because that would run contrary to everything we know of scripture. Rather, what Jesus is pulling out and drawing forth from us is teaching in a way, instead saying that the emphasis is upon our extension of forgiveness is the evidence that we have experienced forgiveness. 
or to say it this way, it would be really awkward and inconsistent for someone to be praying for forgiveness who is not also extending forgiveness. They've missed the point. They've missed something. My mind goes to Matthew 18 where Jesus begins to tell that parable. It's in response to Peter's question, how often should I forgive my brother? And Jesus begins to tell this parable of a man who had this massive debt. And he uses a number that's like a Googleplex, so big that you couldn't even begin to comprehend how big this debt is. And yet, because of this debt being so big, he's about to be thrown into prison for the rest of his life with his wife and with his children. But his master comes to him and says, I forgive you of this massive debt. And then Jesus goes on in the parable, the same man who was just forgiven of this massive debt turns around to one of his fellow servants who owed him a minuscule debt, like a Chuck E. Cheese token worth of debt. He tackles him. He begins to physically choke him, Jesus says, demanding he repay what he owes. Now, Jesus tells the parable like a master storyteller showing us the absolute inconsistency and the injustice jumps off the page at us and Jesus says, you're right, because the word he uses in the parable is that is wickedness. The injustice of being forgiven a massive debt and being unable to turn around and forgive a minuscule debt is completely inconsistent. You haven't understood of what you've actually been forgiven, have you, friend? The same goes here in Jesus' teaching in Mark 11. The same teaching echoes in our minds as we hear Paul's instruction to the Colossian church. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must, imperative, must forgive. And what does forgiveness look like? Because maybe I can find a loophole there. Thomas Watson is helpful. He defines forgiveness in this way. What does forgiveness look like? It's when we strive or fight against all thoughts of revenge. When we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them. When we grieve at their calamities. When we pray for them. When we seek reconciliation with them. And show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. J.C. Ryle, our prayers must not only be for earnest, fervent, and sincerity requests in the name of Christ. They must contain one or more ingredient besides. They must come from a forgiving heart. We have no right to look for mercy if we are not ready to extend mercy to our brothers. We cannot really feel the sinfulness of the sins we ask to have pardoned if we cherish malice towards our fellow man. Concern of Christ for his house and for his followers could be summed up in one word, genuineness. The sort of genuineness that can't be faked. What does Christ find as he comes among us this morning? Instead of trying to shuffle your fig leaves around right now, hear the announcement of Scripture. Christ comes to his house and he warns, but he warns through the greatest news that you could have ever heard. We have no need. It's absolute foolishness 
to hide our empty and fruitless lives behind barren religion and self-righteous living. There is no need to do that. Christ comes actually to dead and to barren lives, and he speaks forth words of grace. He comes to dry bones, and he tells them to live. He can surely come to fruitless trees and say, bear fruit. The good news of what God does for barren lives is not to say, try harder or produce some fruit. He says, stop hiding and hide yourself in me. Because when you are hid in Christ, fruit is inevitable. It's not a strenuous work in the sense of you must produce somehow on your own. If you are united to Christ by the means of his spirit, he begins to produce gospel fruit in your life. It is impossible to be united to Christ and not bear fruit. It may be slow. The process may sometimes be hidden. It may be discouraging. He may even actually prune. But those united to Christ rejoice to know that the fruit that he longs for the fruit that he demands, he actually provides by uniting us to himself. And so he calls out to us this morning, and he tells us to come to him, the fountain of living water. He calls out to us this morning, and he compels us to come to him, to lay aside our filthy rags of self-righteousness, and to be clothed in his righteousness. This is the best news that you could ever hear if you are exposed as a false professor. Christ comes to bring righteousness. Christ comes to bring fruit. This is the wonderful news that we find refuge in. Because like our first parents, we're all in the same predicament apart from Christ. We can't bear fruit on our own. We can't bear the righteousness that God demands. It must be given to us. And Christ comes as the servant king to serve his people by laying his life down and saying, my righteousness for your filth. My life-giving, fruit-producing spirit for your barrenness. And that, friends, is grace. That is what he gives. Our Lord God, we look to you this morning and we want to be mindful of the duality of what you preached to us this morning from your word. Sober warning and tremendous comfort. And Lord, how often through the irony of what you give, you produce the same thing through the same means. You warn and you comfort. You rebuke and you console. The very thing that would damn us and harm us, Lord, you've come to provide and to prevent against. And so we bring our lives under the authority of your word and we ask that you would shape our lives by your good standard. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bring belief and repentance that you would continue to cause the fruits of repentance to be born among us, that you would guard us against the deception of saying, the temple, the temple, that you would guard us against any false hope of anything other than you yourself being what we hide ourselves in. Lord, do a good work amongst us in such a way that it would be a joyful announcement of what you have come to do, to bring outsiders and turn them into insiders, to spread a table before us and to cause us to feast instead of being fearful of all that we should be judged for, knowing that you've been judged in our place. Lord, do this good work amongst us, that Christ might be glorified. Amen.